a listener production. Welcome to part B of episode 115 of the Howie Games and the guest is none other than Mark Howie Howard. Just to reset and remember why you can't hear his voice at the moment, I'm Adam Gilchrist and I decided to interview him, not just on my behalf, but on behalf of all his devoted listeners so that we could learn more about his story. Here we go with part B. I I want to... Well, that's not underselling what you did prior, but I think a lot of the listeners and, and started to really learn more about you and your and, and your profile grew on the back of the big bash, I oh, think. You game know, but, but it's you know, there was a, a significant amount of a strong body of work leading up to that, obviously with footy and calling the footy when Channel Ten had it and obviously Triple M and radio, mm. you've been right across all that. But but Channel Ten, like a bit like what you just said about Channel 7 had for 35 years, Channel 9 decided not to take Big Bash. Yeah. Creative Australia decided to get it on free-to-air. Fox had done a, a terrific job in launching the first couple of years, but they wanted more exposure. They wanted to grow this game and, and, and get into new markets and new yep. demographics, and, and they did that, uh, entrusted that with Channel 10. Mm. What can you remember the conversations when Dave Barham, who is head of sport at that time yeah. there, uh, and you are already with Channel 10, what were the discussions around and about and, and what did you think when you saw the list of names that he suggested he wanted to build, he had to build the commentary team? Yeah, he did and he, he did a phenomenal job and he, and he, he revolutionised Big Bash and took it to the masses and turned it into what it is now. So, I, mate, I had no interest. I, I liked reporting. I liked asking the questions. I, I had no interest in commentary. It never crossed my mind. And then Channel 10 got that 1HD sports channel for a couple of years and they got that Iron Man and they're like, oh, we need someone to commentate the Iron Man. Do you want to do it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, mate, the first ever commentary gig, first ever on-air commentary gig was the Cool and Gatter Gold. I don't know what year it was. And it was with Trevor Hendy and Guy Leach, who I love both mm. those men because they just fit healthy, inspiring, warm, motivating individuals. But I'm sitting there in this porter hut on Cooley Beach mm. Done my research about the cool and get a goal, what it's all about, you know. There's, there's, there's the ski and there's the swim and there's the run and they do a bloody lot of it. And uh, Trev's out on the ski. So he's he's the man we cross to. He's out on the jet ski and so it's me and Leachy, right? Yeah. With three minutes to go, Leachy's not there before the start of the event. I'm thinking, I don't even know what to say apart from hello and welcome. This is the ex-edition of the cool and get a gold. And with 30 seconds to go, Leachy, who is more in awe of his own body than anyone I've ever met, <laughs> he, he comes in with his budgies on, oh. straight out of the surf, glistening, yeah. looking at his arms <laughs> and abs. I'd met him and sits down. He's like, you ready, Howie? I'm like, yep, hello and welcome. And then away we went. So that was the first thing I'd ever commentated on. And then Triple M are like, have a crack at commentating the footy. Yep. And I was like, uh, I'd done a lot of boundary riding. There was no future in that. So I did some practice games. James Brayshaw helped yep. me out tremendously. And it, it took me a long time to click with footy, a couple of years. But then so, so we get the cricket. And I just rang Dave and I'd done a lot of boundary riding for him at 10 at the footy and had been the Commonwealth Games with him, had it been that guy when he rang up two days before and said, mate, we need to go and shoot 40 colour stories in India. Can you go on a plane in two days? Sky was three months old. You'd just be you and a cameraman. Can you go in two days? I was like, yep. So I'd always been his yes man. Yeah. So then it was the first time I rang him and said, Dave, 
I'd love to be involved in the cricket. Because you love cricket, didn't you? I loved like, it. That's been I loved it, mate. part of your whole childhood yeah. and life. Yeah, I grew up playing cricket. Yeah. I grew up idolising. I grew up idolising you guys, which is, is part of the story. You know, I grew up as a massive fan of Alan Border, then Steve Waugh, then you and Ricky and yeah. I should say Junior in there, but I love watching him play. <laughs> I did love watching him bat. I remember his first 100. I was in the backyard at the Shepherds playing backyard cricket when he was smoking yeah. the palms around the Adelaide Oval. Yeah. I think he told us the other day that he just basically creamed every ball in the middle and yeah. it wasn't that hard and they should have picked him yeah, sort of earlier. three years yeah. earlier. <laughs> so we got the cricket and I was thinking small scale. I was thinking I could get a gig on the boundary here. Yeah, And to Dave's... Dave set up my life really now. I, I don't just mean work-wise, like financially, the opportunities it's given me, the mm. friendships I've made, the um, ability to launch the podcast with a small profile. That all comes back to Dave saying, well, do you think you could commentate it? Yep, I could commentate it. Yeah. It's that same approach. And the, the first- Did you feel nervous oh. being in the company of, well, the guys that you just mentioned there and- well, it, it's a good question. I can't remember. I can remember clearly first meeting Ricky when he came up and security said Rocky Ponting is downstairs. <laughs> I remember that clear as a bell thinking, wow, this bloke had to choose between nine in the test matches yep. and ten in the big bash and we're calling him Rocky Ponting and Flem was in the room then. <laughs> Flem is very easy to get on. I don't. You you won't remember when we first met. I don't remember, but I remember, uh, to be completely frank I now, remember. Do you? Wardrobe fitting. Was it a wardrobe yeah. fitting, was it? Yeah. At Channel 10? Yeah. Right. All I just remember about you is you were this superstar, but you were so approachable that I felt relaxed around you almost immediately. And same with Flem because yeah. he's such a bloody goofball. Yeah. Junior took me two years to crack. It's it's not a negative. You've got to prove yourself to Junior. Yep. You would know this yep. better than me. But the one that I really, sorry, I really shat myself around was Ricky because he was Ricky and yeah. he was a hero to me. And we he we set up a dummy call off TV where we were going to practice. It was me, him, and Flem. And I just remember him walking in, and I'd met him briefly in a meeting, and I just remember thinking, shit, I'm out of my depth here. Like, oh, this is Ricky Ponting and I've got to sit beside him and talk about cricket. Yeah. And you, you come back on all those experiences, whether it's getting into a border that you shouldn't have been in or getting told that you haven't got the right accent. And you, I guess you draw on that type yeah. of experience and you fumble your way through it. So in answer to your question, mate, yeah, I was really, really taken aback by Ricky because, again, till you get to know him, he, he's now he seems to be the world's friendliest bloke, but he's Ricky Ponting. Well, like you, you said I'm, you said Dave Barham, his mandate to you was you need to make these guys relatable. You need to yeah. let them become or the audience engage deeply with them as their personalities yep. and showcase that. Could you in your wildest dreams have ever thought that you would be able to get Ricky Ponting, the Australian test <laughs> captain, our arguably our top two or three batsmen ever to sing on primetime TV in a big bash coverage. That was when I knew what we had on our hands and I knew <laughs> Dave's advice was right yeah. to to show that Ricky is not just a bloke with a frown on his face when he's captaining his country in a tough look under a helmet. He's a bloke that loves a beer and loves Greyhound and loves his kids and loves North Melbourne and that you are all those people, that you are just like every 
cricketer I've ever played with in my low level of cricket. You blokes are all the same. Yeah. You love team. You love your mates. You generally love having a beer. You love sitting around at the end of the day discussing the game. Yeah. You love your families, but you were just way better at cricket than all the rest of us. Mm. And I think at that moment when – and there's a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes to get Rick to that point. Yeah. Even that night – it would have been me that brought up Junior did the Abami Army have a song about you. Do you remember it? So, again, you're just laying the groundwork, not thinking Ricky will go down that yeah. path. But, was, he, but he, he clearly felt comfortable yeah. enough by that point. I think I, I scored one too at one stage. What was yours all about? Oh, I can't. I've tried to forget it, actually. Right. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> they have one for you, Rick. Mark Warriors and Aussie wears a baggy hat. When he saw the bookies cash, he said, I'm having that. He got a good memory. Shared it out with Warney. They went and had some beers. <laughs> and when the ACB found out, they covered up for years. <laughs> Mark Laurie. <laughs> you know, word for word. You are kidding. <laughs> that is the moment of the Big Bash Ricky Ponting singing. We need to turn around and get the Arias tuned in. Three overs done. Hunt for 29, punter. Yeah, he, he talked to me. I was talking to him about it in Adelaide. He said, oh, I saw on the clip of me singing again. He said, what was I thinking? I was like, Rick, that's when the country fell in love with you, not just yeah. as a cricketer. That was my my fondest memories of, of particularly that first year was I agree with you. I probably still to an extent hold Ricky, Which Ricky Ponting? up a higher level and even though I'm such good mates with him, have been for 20-odd yeah. years, but was to showcase his personality. Yeah. Let the world see that he's more than everything that you described yeah. before. And that's... And that's where I come back to that advice from Dave and it comes back to anyone in any job is to play your role. And my role was clearly defined is you are the guy that he's saying he hits today mid-wicket for six. You've got to find out. In fact, the first game, did you do the first game? Yep. So it was you, me and was it was probably punt, was it? But I remember the bowler standing at the top of the mark and me thinking, I, I can get my way through the pregame and I can, hello and welcome. I've done all that before. I've done that at Kangool and Gadagoa. We've got Australian legends, Ricky Ponting and Adam Gilchrist. Here's this exciting night for cricket in this country. I can do all that because mm-hmm. I've done it. And I can do it next to Ricky off a taped game because I've already watched the game the night before <laughs> so I don't stuff it up in front of Ricky. So I've seen the game. I know that Mitch Marsh is going to get one on his hip and he's going to hit it over back yeah. the square before he does it. Yeah. But I don't know that in the live game. And I can, mate, I remember clearly the bowler at the top of his mark. And I had enough time with everything that was going on. And there was a lot going on to think, what if nothing comes out when he hits the ball? <laughs> what if I just don't know what to say? Because I'd never done it before. Yeah. And I guess something comes out. He gives himself room. There's the edge and it's gone straight past Matty Way. Well, it was only about a metre from him, Adam Gilchrist. But, mate, that first game got to the innings break and I was that far oh, – that, that was, that was the first time I had to listen to a director and there was – because that's what they do in cricket. You listen to the director mm. every ball. I still don't know why we do that. And, that, like, there was so much sponsors and I'm thinking about making Ricky and Gilly look good but I'm thinking about the cricket. That, like, I, I, it's now like, like anything you do for the first time, now I can do it w- with a very limited amount of my mental capacity, to be honest. Not test mm. cricket but big bash cricket. But at the end of the first innings break, if you'd said to me, how far into the game are we? So after 20 overs, I would have said, I reckon we're about three overs into the game. Yeah. Like that's how far off the pace I was of what was actually happening yeah. around me. But it worked, didn't it? Yeah. It worked. It did. It did. 
I've never been involved in a product so much where the commentary becomes that goggle box part of a people's night. Mm. And I don't know if people appreciate that enough going forward that, that, as I said, I was just playing my role in the corner, but they were used to seeing you and Flem and Junior and Punter in their lounge room having a laugh every night for the whole of Christmas when anyone was generally feeling good. It, it, geez, it had a big impact in it. It was a good time, a great time. And all of, I mean, a unique feeling because all of Channel 10 who just really, I guess, were the, the little brother yeah. compared to the other bigger networks, they, they fully embraced it, didn't they? And, and I think the master stroke of, of Dave Barham where I'd, I'd tried a little bit of commentary for one year, or not even one year, about three games At nine. when I finished five years prior to this point in time and I, I didn't think it was me. I didn't really like it. But Why? when he told me, well, I just didn't think I had much to offer. Right. I just didn't think about the game in an analytical sense, even when I was playing. So I didn't think I was going to be that great at it and that interested in it. But then when he rang me up, I didn't know him and he, I said, who else have you got? And he said, Ponting, War, Fleming. And I went, oh, I'm in. Right. Just because they're, they're just great mates and that'll be good fun. And then. So Howard didn't and, get you across well, the line at that said, point? He, said, <laughs> he did. Well, this is the point. He said, Mark Howard and Andy Marr will be our two sort of callers. Mm. And they'll. And I, I've got to be uh, admit, I sort of thought, oh, yeah. Like, part of and why I would. said yes is because those other three guys, you know, Junior Punter, Flemmer, are three of my best mates. And I, can, I knew we were going to be. Uh, gel together really well. Do we need someone else in there that's a bit of a, a stranger to us mm. to, in, a, in, a, in far of our relationship? We're a stranger to the nation as um, well. Yeah, but it was so required and so perfectly balanced to have a professional in there to to do like do your role. Yeah, that top with uh, Mel McLaughlin. That she was the first person you saw on our new every night yeah big 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 bash coverage and that is what, what it was all about taking a new demographic so attracting um the the female audience or mothers or you know so just very very simple basic fundamentals but one last question on that what did you think when the rights changed and we all thought we were bulletproof and invincible mm. and we were going to do this for the rest of our life it was a it was a it was a shock, wasn't it? It was a shock that we lost the rights, mm. and we had endless conversations. Yeah. You and me, because you were the first one to sign at Fox, and I had texts with Ricky at seven, and you at Fox, and it was like choosing between Federer and Nadal. Either was going to be an outstanding choice, mm. and it would have been fantastic to work for seven as well. But I'm really glad with the choice I made in the end. Yeah, it's been. Absolutely brilliant. Had a great couple of years. And did you find it, Dewey Gordon? Did oh, you like how, how were those conversations? Because you were the first one to sign at Fox. Yeah. So well, you, I, you went out on a limb. I yeah. I signed with Fox very very quickly. It was it very was quickly. A, such a hard decision to make in the back of because it was so emotional. I was, I was trying to couldn't work out a way. We say in sport, don't play on emotion, play on skill. But it was just. There were so many emotions involved and, and nonetheless, as you say, um, about the, the group we had there and Dave Barham and where, where it was all left and, and, and how we felt it may have been headed, yeah. you know, at 10 p.m. one night compared to the next morning. Oh, and, it's devastating uh, when we got that call. But what I do know is that for whatever reason, I signed very quickly and was the first to sign out of anyone. Yeah, you were. I went with Fox and then going into the detail, but Ricky went with seven and Steve Crawley said to me, right, who do we need? We've got to build a team. 
and I'm sure he was expecting any number of a list of ex-test cricketers or captains or overseas captains for be the name that I first said, and my first name was Mark Howard. Me a good man. That's absolutely, without doubt, key to that broadcast team. So, yeah, it was a very emotional time, uh, and fortunately no friendships were lost out of it, any yeah. of it, because uh, it was got delicate for a while, but we've all managed to, no matter where we all land, yeah. landed, we were able to see through that it, that's the industry. And that's what I kept saying to you guys, oh, we're going to get the rights, we're all fine, we're, you know, whatever. And, and just all you guys that had been in the industry, you just never know no, because a, a number of you had had heartbreaking decisions. We had beers with the CBS American executives after the Grand Prix who were saying, right. you're golden I here, went, don't I worry went about it. I went to LA with Dave Barr and Paul yeah. Anderson, the CEO team. But, yeah. but anyway, it panned out the way it did, right? I really, this could go for another hour because there's so much talk about here but oh, we'll just cut the crap you tell it's the all right podcast mate yeah the names the the identities that you've spoken with the if there's one episode yep that you had to tell someone or, or would recommend that someone has to listen to is there one it's two right one if you want a true representation of what the show aims to be yep is luke longley Right. Just listen to it because it has everything that you need in a good story. It's got <laughs> amazing stories about Jordan and Pippen and Rodman. Yeah. Yeah. It's got great humour. It's got depth of someone, you know, he, he wasn't as good, Luke Longley, at basketball as these blokes. No. Yet he played in three championships with yeah. him through hard work. Yeah. So it's got the hard work and the perseverance and it's just got some real wow factor. Like, you know, I signed my first deal for a million bucks and what did I discuss with my dad that night? Now tell me about that. What, what, what is that actually like as a young bloke when someone well, gives a million bucks? my old man's famously bad with money. Right. And um, <laughs> he, uh, one of his, I think one of his worst bits of advice, he told me, he said, whenever you, you know, when you get your first job, Luke, this is before basketball, he said, oh, what I did, I think you should enjoy your money, not save it. He said, I spent my whole first paycheck on champagne and oysters. <laughs> Slightly different paycheck. So I said, Dad, how are we going to do this, mate? <laughs> Should we buy an oyster farm or a, or a winery? You know, um, it's aspirational and it's motivational and it's positive. Yeah, which are the best ways I want the podcast to be. So, yeah. longly for that. The other one is non-representative of the show. In some ways, now I made a rod for my own back because of the high-profile athletes. Sometimes, I probably don't do the stories that I started doing at the start where they weren't people you necessarily knew, but there's an episode with a gentleman called Jack Jones, mm. and I know you've listened to it. Yep. Jack played in seven grand finals for the Bombers. He's the grandfather of Sarah Jones, the Fox footy host and all-round star, passed away last year. He fought in Papua New Guinea and his descriptions of war and mateship, but it's not all the cliched stuff about war. It's the brutality of war and the necessity to sacrifice yourself for your mates, which in theory is what this country was built on. Mm. Any Australian should listen to that because Jack's no longer with us anymore and he's the greatest Australian I've ever met. So I did that with him at Channel 10. It's not representative of the show, but it is just a phenomenal look back at our history and you can see why this whole Anzac spirit, Anzac legend came about because of blokes like Jack that were prepared to sacrifice anything for their mates and walked into the most desperate situations without fear because, in his words, they were going to work. Yeah. 
you, you didn't even think about it. You got up every morning. You didn't know whether you're going to be still alive by the end of the day. What could you do? I know people well, I don't know, can't I, understand that. No, I, I have no. I have no understanding. You couldn't of what be you're frightened saying. because you had to look after. You. I had to look after you, for instance, and I had to look after that bloke there. You know. So you didn't feel fear? No, no, never felt fear at all. Has there been a time again touching on? Ricky Ponting and relationship there in in the episode with him, mm. he ended up in tears. Yeah, he did in talking about family and the, and the journey and and the very well documented struggles he had early and yep. issues that he had to overcome. Has there been a time in any of the interviews? And I've got one in in my mind that I'd like to ask about. But has there been a time where someone's answered something in in, in really emotional circumstances where you've been? Absolutely floored by what they say or their reaction to a question. Well, well, Rick was talking about his young bloke Fletch, who was yeah. in touch and go in hospital, and Rick broke down in tears in front of me. This is we've talked about how we view Ricky, yeah, little tough hairy arm bastard that he is. <laughs> um, and it was before a game of Big Bash at Spotless, and we cut some of it out because it was a bit too raw. Yeah, like he sure. was, he was right in the moment at the time when he got to six months of age. He had an, another pretty serious infection that we didn't know anything about, the doctors didn't know much about and, yeah, that was the scariest one because he was sort of shut down for, well, he was, I think, uh, sedated for about four or five days at, at one stage with um, where he couldn't open his eyes and, um, yeah. Yeah, I can obviously see the effect it has on you, mate, which is why it's... Um <laughs> now you've got me upset. That's what happens when you've got young kids, mate. Um, Deep breath and get on with it, eh? Um, never done that before. I've spoken about him a lot of times, but that's never happened before. So anyway, move on. The one that really, really, really got into my soul was um, Yelena Dokic. Right. Talking about the physical and mental abuse she received at the hands of her father. And she was talking about when it started. And I think she was talking about it started at age eight or nine. And it was Sky's eighth or ninth birthday that day. Yeah. And she started consoling me because I started crying. Yeah. And she's like, no, you don't need to be upset. You know, I've, I've done, I've done, I've, I've gone through all this. But a beautiful, beautiful woman who's completely different to what you would expect to think that she would have suffered through that and that we read the headlines and rolled our eyes and think mm. what a lunatic family. Well, I've learnt, mate, and it's going on a different topic now, I've learnt that just because you're good at tennis doesn't mean you don't have feelings and mm. it's not – you've got to be very careful what you write and say about people in this because they've got mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and yep. and friends that read these things about them and it cuts to their soul. But, yeah, listening to Yelena talk about what her father had done to her, um, especially when you become a father. You know, it's like when you become a dad, all of a sudden you oh, start yeah. crying at the bloody drop of a hat. Yeah. Yeah. No. And again, all credit to you that you create an environment and a, a setting and a, and a, a rapport that you, you know the, the people you're asking these questions of want to answer honestly. Mm. Kate Campbell, Kate unbelievable. Campbell. I just Campbell. found that Kate and Bronte. Yeah. I think at seventy one, season six. Right. Good by you. Uh, at the hotel we stayed in Coogee. Yeah. In the business room. Listening reading. to her talk about Rio and the race. Yeah. And the emotion, the build-up, the aftermath—it was absolutely compelling listening. Yeah, I've spoke to her a few times since, and she's like, "Oh, you know, you, 
you got me on a day where I was emotional about various things and I don't know if I should have been that open. And she says, but I think it was the right thing to do. And I'm like, Kate, it was completely the right thing to do. And the, both the sisters were in tears. Yeah. I made the long walk back down to the warm down pool and I could... I could see my coach. standing um, at the end of that pool and sport is really interesting because when you do well everyone knows what to do but when you don't do well people don't know what to do and it was a long lonely walk and the first words I said to my coach, first words I said to Simon was, I'm so sorry, this isn't what I wanted for us. And I think the key thing that I've learned, we've done a lot of these now, so, you know, there's a hundred, they, they go for a couple of hours each. It's, it's 250 plus hours of interviewing, mm. but it's not interviewing, it's, it's conversational. It's, general, yeah. it's something I wish I was better at in life is to show empathy. I think that's the most important thing. So... Rather than just wading and saying, well, how did you feel when you lost? Mm. It's you've just got to be empathetic. It's like, geez, Kate, you've described your journey. You had so much pressure on you. You'd done everything you could. What is it like when you touch the finish line and your dreams have been dashed? So it's about putting yourself in that person's shoes and then mm. asking the question, yep. not just asking the question. It's like, well, you did, you know, your dream was dashed. You just can't weighed in like that I don't think because you wouldn't do that in the street or in no. the pub you'd be very yeah so that's what I try and do is put myself in that person's shoes as much as you can before you frame the question but what you do Howie and, and I think all the listeners would agree with this is you listen I, I always relate back to um, and this might be a bit melodramatic and off off topic but uh, remember that uh, Bowling for Columbine yes. movie Michael Moore yes around the um, massacre. massacre at school. Mm-hmm. And in amongst it all, he interviewed Marilyn Manson, singer who it was relayed that the person that carried out that massacre listened to a lot of his music. Gee, and, that's a tough interview. And he said, what would you say to the young people of Columbine now on the back of that fact coming out? <sighs> well, I haven't seen that. And he said, I wouldn't say anything. I'd just listen. And I thought it was a really, really strong answer. I thought it was fantastic. You know, obviously there's this ability that everyone could go, oh, it's your fault, you're, you know, indoctrinating the heads of young people or whatever, but he said, oh, I'd listen. There's not enough people listening to our young people. Mm. And, and you, as I say, it's a bit dramatic and off, off piece, but you, you listen and garner the information that they're giving you and then you do show a huge amounts of empathy that then allows them to to want to open up so it's a real credit to you and i think that's part of the journey of the howie games that's what makes it such a pleasurable listen thank you mate i think um it's like coming back to that advice from dave about making those stars around you and play your role and Mm. i i've never thought people are tuning into this podcast to listen to me they are tuning in to listen to Adam Gilchrist or Ricky Ponting or Lewis Hamilton. Mm. So it does my head in when I listen to podcasts when they've got 
my dream guest, Kelly Slater, on, and old mate that's interviewing him feels three quarters of the conversation with his own stories. It's like, mate, yeah. I'm not tuning in to listen to you. I'm tuning in to listen to Kelly. So say as little as possible, I think, in this type of situation, which is why this is bizarre because I've been doing <laughs> bloody hours. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this. You've never paid a guest? No. Ever had, don't need to name names, yep. anyone say, yeah, I will do it for a fee and therefore they haven't been on the show? No, I, I've had... A couple of guests ask about, is there a fee? Yeah. Which is a, it's a tricky one because it's a very valid question. Yeah. Most of these people don't need a dollar. No. Anyway, but what I try and do in that situation, and it's so relevant now, is to be able to promote them and what they're about yeah. through the, you know, when you have 100 listeners, but when you've got 50 million listens, you have a presence where you can, promote someone's book or Instagram page or new business. So that 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 definitely helps. Yep. That definitely helps. But that's what made the, the business of podcasts is a whole new world that I, I, I'm not really very good at, good at. But you have to educate yourself once it becomes to a certain point, yeah. I think. Like, mate, your, your episode was the first one to come out um, and Michael James, who was originally on this journey with me and he's now rejoined Podcast One, which is fantastic, after a week – you had, I reckon you had 50 listens after a week, 50. 50 and mate, listeners. we were cracking beers. We're like, how is this 50 <laughs> people have listened to Gilly? Right, who's our next episode? So the thing is at 50 million, it, it's ridiculous. Is that the number? Yeah, it's about 50 million now, um, which yes. is ridiculous. So, mate, we were well we were going to town when you cra- cracked up uh, 50, Guru. So, yeah, it's progressed. It's progressed, which is good. Time for a quick break just to remind everyone what a huge back catalogue Howie now has on the Howie Games. Amazing talent, amazing inspirational stories. I've got to say, my favourite episode to this point, they keep chopping and changing as new episodes come out, but the most recent one that really caught my attention, episode 111, Martin Tyler, a guru of football or soccer, whatever you want to call it, broadcasting. I grew up loving the game and his voice is synonymous with all the big games, all the special moments. Like when Manchester City, and it's not even my team, I was a Liverpool man, but when Man City pinched the EPL title back in 2011-2012 season, right in the last minutes of the season. Balotelli, Aguero! talk about the fact it's never scripted if you had the opportunity to script that two days later I don't think you could do any better than that and there can be no greater compliment that in the moment in the biggest moment you were at your absolute best from where I sat as a fan well, that's very kind of you to say that and I'm, I'm not going to give you false modesty or anything like this of course the reason there's such a pause is twofold really I, I've always believed that 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 silence is one of the commentators' best tools, to be honest with you. And But they, Mark Hughes, I saw 24 hours later at dinner in London, it was the manager's dinner of the year, just happened to be there. I bumped into him and he said it was the noisiest moment in a football ground he'd ever heard. 
because and he played for Man United in big games, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and if for him to say that. Actually, in retrospect, I can see why there's the pause before I, I go again. I saw a good friend of mine, Brian McDermott, who was a manager of Reading then, I think, who's managed in the Premier League, uh, about three months later. And he said, oh, I finally got around to hearing it and a couple of weeks ago, and well done. I said, no, look, it's Aguero's moment. It's Manchester City's moment, which is true. That's, that's what it is. And he went, no, at least you didn't. Mess it up was not the word yes. he used, <laughs> but you can imagine what he did say. And I, and that's the, the best thing I feel about it, that it is there. It will be there after I'm long gone and I wouldn't change it. Absolutely brilliant. What a legend. That's Martin Tyler, episode 111 of the Howie Games. Let's get back to Howie. Right, buddy, we... Been pretty positive here. It's all you, you're the show. guru. I know you, you are the guru. And uh, but where are you going here? My first, my first intro into Formula One uh, broadcasting. <laughs> I, I very quickly had to do a, an interview of Jensen Button, Melbourne Park down there, the Melbourne Grand Prix. I com- <laughs> confidently, well researched, said Jensen, you must love Melbourne. Had your first win here, two thousand eight. You, you won a, a dual champion. You went on and won the world championship that year, and 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 it must have a warm place in your heart. And he just looked at me and said, three time champion here." And I went, "Great, we can edit that out." But uh, in the Formula One field, I do recall one other little slip up, at least one uh, yeah. when you're on the world feed pre-race. Yeah, I, I've had a few in F1. There um, was one particular instance where Kimi Räikkönen had changed teams out of West McLaren. Mercedes and he was replaced by Heike Kovalainen and he was coming past me and thankfully this didn't go to air because it was pre-recorded in an ad break. I begged them not to put it to air. So it's Heike walking past me but he's got Kimmy's race suit on from last year, similar looking dude and I'm like, Kimmy, 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 can we have an interview? And he's walking past me like, Kimmy, Kimmy. He's like, my name is Heike. <laughs> but the one you're referring to which did go to air so the Grand Prix, we do the Australian coverage. Yeah. And then uh, the boys that I used to work with on F1 wanted me to do some interviews on the grid for the world feed. Now, we're talking yeah. about cutting the Italians to bars earlier on. This is so This is so everyone in the world sees this interview. Yep. And a man that is, let's be honest, lucky to be alive, yeah. Raymond Grosjean had that enormous shunt this year and lovely man and I'm just so glad he's all okay. So I had to interview him out uh, at the end of the driver's parade just before they're getting ready to start. So I bowl up and he's a lovely Frenchman, Romain Grosjean. There is also a wily <laughs> tennis player out of France called Sebastian Grosjean. Sebastian. <laughs> now, I reckon I'd interviewed Romain as a one-on-one that same Grand Prix. Yeah. And for whatever reason... Out in the grid here, I'm joined by Sebastian Grosjean. And he's the freaking tennis player and the whole world has seen it. And I don't know if it still exists, but I remember in the next six sentences, yep. I called him Romain nine times. <laughs> I was like, so Romain, now tell me Romain. Like I, and I get back thinking I, I just can't, I just can't look on Twitter here because this is going to the I just cannot face the hate that I'm about to yeah. get here. Gather myself, 
probably no one's even realised within the coverage. And I walk back into the compound and there's you and you're like, oh, Sebastian, oh, no. Well, I was, I was out on the other side of the track, the far side oh, of the track. Ricardo, because when they do the driver parade around the whole track, at, at turn five or whatever it was, Ricardo and Max Verstappen are going to pull over and I'm sitting there shitting bricks. Because <laughs> as you say, I've, I'm nervous enough being on the Australian coverage, but when you flip the over world. on world feed, so all the F1 diehards around the world are watching this and they're analysing the questions and, and the whole broadcast. So I'm out there nervously waiting and I'm in front of the hill <laughs> there. At, uh, is it turn five? or uh, Yeah, at the back near the golf course. Max Verstappen Hill. It's a sea of orange. <laughs> they're all there and I'm standing there on the grass looking on the big screen in front of them and you fire away with Sebastian <laughs> and the, the crowd behind me. You're the old, Oh, <laughs> right, you're going to hear the murmuring. I'm but, glad I didn't see that. Uh, I must admit it, but it made uh, me relax into my job, uh, speaking of you, Danny you Rick. Mate, you get it wrong. You, uh, get, you, you get it wrong. Like, and what about the versatility that you've shown across all your sports? You've already, you know, you speak often about them and, and yep. I think that the lengths you were prepared to go to. But um, swimming, you had a crack at oh, swimming. There's a, there's a couple in there. Who have you been talking to? <laughs> well, mate, when you're talking to the <laughs> torpedo, well, the, the, the world is watching. The bunny torpedo. He he was making his comeback, right? So he was trying to in his comeback. So the Australian trials was bigger than Ben Hur, and he gets out. I think it was the two hundred was his last chance to qualify, and he's missed the time. So I'm thinking, I've got to be so empathetic here because yeah. this is a legend. He's yeah. the best one we've ever had. Oh. He's had this comeback. It hasn't worked out. So what actually happened? He comes out of the pool. And he's profiled to me, right? <laughs> so he's side on. And I've used the, the most Howie Games empathetic. I've nailed the question about, you know, the country's behind you and you put your heart and soul into this. And, you know, no matter the result, you must be so proud of where you've come from. And he gets halfway through his answer. It's the biggest interview of his career. And he goes from profile to turn to be front on. <laughs> and he's got this massive Booger <laughs> hanging out his snout. Oh. Do I tell him? He's, he's, he's bearing his soul to the nation. Do I interrupt him <laughs> or not? And so I chose not to and then I was going to say, I, I was going to just rub my hand across <laughs> my face for the non-verbal cue and I, I did that and he didn't pick up on it. Ian, firstly, it's been fantastic and wonderful to see you back in the pool. You've all given it as a massive thrill. It hasn't turned out the way you want it. It's been a big couple of weeks, hasn't it? Look, it has been a, a big couple of weeks. I, um, you know, I, I came into this and, uh, you know, I was pretty happy with, with, with my preparation and, and thought that, you know, I, I'd be able to, to give this a red-hot go. And, uh, you know, it hasn't panned out the way that I wanted it to. So then I'm starting my next question. I'm thinking, do I say, oh, Ian, you just want to wipe? And I was too gutless too. <laughs> and I have since spoke to him about this. I think on the podcast he's like, yeah. I can't believe you, didn't, you tell didn't tell me that I had the biggest booger hanging out of a nose on one of the most excruciating moments in my swimming career. So, yeah, but the fact he turned profile to front on. Um, oh, awkward. Yeah. Awkward. Yeah. But that wasn't tell, tell us. Oh, you the, got oh, the one I love. The, oh. the one I love. The other swimming one is just a, it's just a, a tough, 
Must be tough when you're, it's not your number one sport that you've ever followed. So or, me and Anthony Hudson were thrown into the swing, and, and I, I loved it. In the end, yeah. I really got something out of the the pool interviews because we tried to do the on deck, like you're talking about cricket being a bit differently, a little bit differently, and a bit more to the heart and soul of the athlete. Yeah. And at some stages at the Australian Championships, they've all bloody got goggles on, they've <laughs> all got caps on, and they all look pretty similar, right? Yeah. And in a sh- I'm not going to name who this person was, but the Swimming Australia media representative often brings over the winner. If you're yep. a little bit unsure in the maelstrom at all who's won the race, they bring them and yeah. then you interview them straight away. Yep. So can't remember who'd won the race, but there was a swimmer brought over to me and I remember seeing the swimmer that won had green goggles on yeah. And I got halfway through, you must be so pumped, you're the Australian champion. I've glanced down at the swimmer that's been brought to me and they've got blue goggles in their hand. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and it's the worst feeling ever. I'm thinking, who's this dude? So you said you must be thrilled with your race I've or something? I've already said, I'm, but I'm already halfway through, you must be so thrilled you're the Australian champion. <laughs> and I've seen his goggles, so I've just thought, I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> So I just stopped and he looked at me and he's like, how would I be thrilled? I came seventh. <laughs> and I'm dying. I'm dying. This is live at this stage. I'm dying a million deaths. And the beautiful and talented and wonderful lady who got me through my swimming broadcasting career, Nicole Livingston, was in the yeah. commentary box. And she had identified they'd brought the wrong swimmer and been the guru. She knew who it was. And it was a boat called... I can't remember his second name. He was a Kiwi and his name was, she said, it's Kone someone. So I'm like, I'm going to gather this up. Yep. Grows on style. Yeah, start throwing the name out so, there. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, Kone, obviously, uh, you know, I'm um, sorry, I've got a little bit uh, more wrong way. And he's like, it's not Kone, it's Kune. Oh, God. So then he's told me I've got the name wrong. At this point, I'm like, eject, yeah, pull eject, out. eject, eject. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, got my research wrong on this one. And he's like, you have, maybe you should spend a bit more time doing more research. Oh, he said that to you. Mate. <laughs> and, and this is what I've learned. At that stage, I, I've got the hot flushes. Yeah. I'm like, this is the worst thing that is ever going to happen to me in my life. But you realise it is live TV and it's done. Don't dwell. Toughest interview ever. Oh, Michael Schumacher when he didn't play, when he didn't understand Kimi Raikkonen. Oh, Kimi, I knew Kimi was coming there somewhere. Anytime. <laughs> Kimi, can I have a word? No, no, no. Um, Kimi Raikkonen is pretty tough, but I think it's part of his shtick. Kimi, would you mind if I ask you a question while you're signing autographs? How did you feel yesterday after your 11th in qualifying? A big job in the race today? We'll see how it goes today. Really, so. Appreciate your time. Best of luck. Yeah, those two. Those two. Kimmy was bloody hard. Did you ever interview Kimmy? Or no. No, he didn't let me near him. Jeez, leave that to the gurus, mate. <laughs> I, you know, I remember when I was talking about this with the other day, you'd, you'd, we talked about that that live broadcasting of cricket and yeah. that, that came to me from the Grob Prix and you'd stand at the paddock entrance first by yourself, which was I said, why don't we interview these drivers when they arrive? And then the old your man, the barbecue, Mark Webber, joined me the last few years <laughs> and like he'd just pick and choose. He'd like, yeah, Lewis, I'll do Lewis. Jensen, yeah, I do, Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> Kimmy, no, you do Kimmy Howie. It's like, really? He's like, I don't want to talk to Kimmy. Vettel, no, you, you do Vettel Howie. So he would pick and choose. So, yeah, Kimmy, Kimmy, hard work. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to get him on the show, though, because I'm sure he's a fascinating cat, and they reckon after 28 vodkas, he's the world's best oh, player. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you're listening, Kimmy, 
If you're one of the 50 mil, I'd love to have you on. One of the great highlights for you must have been being the passionate Hawks man. Buddy Franklin kicks 100. You were straight onto the ground, weren't you, with him? Yeah, yeah, I was. How'd that go? Yeah, well, we were planned to go out and interview him as soon as he kicked the 100th goal. What, just stop play? Well, no, because they thought the crowd had come on. And the theory was, Dave said, Christy Malthouse was meant to be working that night, but she was heavily pregnant. And he said, "Um, just do it and see how we go. And the big bud was meant to wait in an area if he kicked the 100th goal, and he didn't. <laughs> there was people everywhere, and there was blokes getting selfies out on the ground. He went down in the rooms, and then the media manager said, no, nah, he doesn't want to do it. And it was one of those moments where Quarters, Stephen Quartermain, an absolute professional, yeah. and the producer, Joel Starsby, was like, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? And the media manager said to me, no, 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 he's not going to do it. And I said to Joel, yeah, yeah, he's good to go. He's good to go. And he came bowling out, and his eyes were spinning, and I bloody compared him to Mick Jagger, but yeah, <laughs> um, which I got home and Erica said, how could you compare where, to Mick Jagger? Where did you draw well, that I comparison? I don't know. It's because he was like a freaking rock star, and I should have gone Kanye or I don't know. So Lance Franklin is ready to get back into the action. Security has said, yep, ready to go. And with a bit of luck, we might get a question as he walks out. Mark Howard's there with the microphone ready to pounce. Go, Howie. It's quarters. It's like the Rolling Stones. Big fella. The crowd was everywhere, mate. How was it? 100 goals. Yeah, it was obviously good to get out of the way in the first quarter. She decided to get back out there and make some boys. It'd be good night. Can you believe the crowd, mate? They're all over you. It's like you're Mick Jagger. Yeah, it was an unbelievable experience. <laughs> well, what about that, boys? He is a genuine superstar, and they love him here at the Torch Oh, great stuff, Howie. Right. What have you got on your phone now? Towards the back end of most podcasts, you typically ask the talent. Yeah. In and around a few things, in and around either uh, philosophies or mm. advice or so on, which leads me towards the next guest question. Okay. Hi, Daddy. Pickle here. Sally Pearson and Kathy Freeman are two of the people that inspire me most. <laughs> and your mummy, of course. No. Oh, yeah. What I would like to know is who inspired you when you were young and who inspires you now? P.S. Am I your favourite child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course you are, sweetie, because you're my daughter. Yeah, I love you, sweetie. Who inspired me when I was young? I don't know if I was inspired. I had heroes. Alan Border was my first hero. I think we came up on the lunch break the other day and showed AB my scrapbook, which was bizarre, with Warney going through my scrapbook with Alan Border and then to sit beside him. And I don't forget that, mate. Like I think it's a privilege every day I go to work when I sit there and talk to you guys about cricket and Mm. listen to your theories. I think the day I don't think it's a privilege is the time to give it away. So Pickles, yeah, AB was – he didn't inspire me but he was my first sporting hero. People that inspire me today, I'm not sure I can name a person. I'm inspired by positive people. Mm. I was inspired by what Usman said last night about – the small things in life and feeling grateful and feeling privileged. So I'm probably more inspired, sweetie, by ideas that revolve around themes to do with being grateful, being adventurous. I'm inspired by adventure. My wife inspires me because not that just that she puts up with me is because she's always moving forward, which is a positive and a negative in our relationship. She would say that as well. She always wants more, not in a material way, but in a if we've achieved this, why can't we achieve this? So I find that quite inspiring. But it's so your mum, sweetie, and probably some just general ideas about life. 
Uh, I think you've described it really well. I mean, you can names sort of can come to mind, but mm. as a general broad brush statement, it's 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 people that have that similar attitude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great quote. I learned from Steve Waugh, attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? Yeah. So just a great question it you is. can ask yourself every it day because that's pretty, pretty much going to set your tone for the day. Very, don't need to go into long detail, but mm. where did you meet? What was the beginnings uh, of the, the relationship? Erica and I met at the St Kilda Sea Bars. I was with right. a mate and we were joining up to the gym and Erica joined us up um, and I think she saw me really in the big sort of strong heavyweights department in the gym and thought I would like <laughs> so a piece of that. you observing there and <laughs> saying that's not for me. <laughs> no, I tried picking up the wet towel. So, no, I, I met her I met her there Yeah, and we had a lot of shared interests, health and fitness being number one. She used to take spin classes right. and I would do her spin class yeah. and it would be this blonde bombshell at the front of the class taking us up like the equivalent of the outdoors and 15 minutes in, I was absolutely cooked and I was like, wow, you know, I was really attracted to her and I'd, I'd spend a bit of time chatting with her and I really liked her and I'm like, well, I've got to get better at got the to- spin because <laughs> she's looking, she's not looking at me. There's all these like gurus at the front that are just powering through. So I actually got quite fit on the spin bike right. trying to trying to keep up with her in the class. And into Cadell Evans yeah, that's to right. impress the lady. That's right, that's uh, right. I've never... Like rarely do you see couples that just look like they're so connected and, and similar interests in, in what they want to go and do or explore. or And, and that's, to me, uh, evident through, through the holidays that you guys have been on mm-hmm. pre and particularly more so post-children and these exotic places that you speak so passionately about. Did she always have that interest or did you sort of have to manoeuvre her that way to, to yeah, get what you wanted? It's a great question. She was always an adventurous type. Yeah. So before I met her, she as a 19 or 20-year-old went off to Europe and and did a bit of that, I think, with another fella at the time. I don't, I don't know what she was thinking there. <laughs> so, so we don't need to go into too much <laughs> no, detail. No. <laughs> but our first holiday together, I used to have a, a situation at 10 when the V8 season finished. I'd have to come back for... Uh, maybe the start of the V8 season the next year. So it was basically a 12-week period. It was mm. the sweetest deal ever. And I'd made sure I'd finish up my other commitments. So I'd sort of have 10 weeks yep. and I'd normally go away. That's when I started going to Central America. And I hadn't I hadn't been to Nicaragua and I'd, I was going to Nicaragua. And he and I had sort of been spending a bit of time together, but it was nothing sort of too serious. And I don't know what overcame me one day. It must have been, I don't know what it was. I remember we were having a coffee or something and I said, oh, I love going away by myself, solo yep. surf trips, yep. um, meet other people along the way, surf with other people from around the world. But it just popped into my head. And before I said it, I, it, it was out there. I said, oh, would you like to come? She said, oh, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to Nicaragua. And she looked at me and we went to Nicaragua. We spent Christmas together and New Year. We went about for eight weeks, Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And uh, and she handled it. It was mm. beyond her travel experiences. Right. It was obviously speaking Spanish, which I could get us through, but she was a trooper. We stayed we stayed in this place on a beach in a place called San Juan del Sur, and I think this is when I thought this is the girl for me because it was, it was this little joint called Matilda's and it was just like little hot box, like brick rooms yeah. run by a Nicaraguan couple, beautiful people. But it was right near the ocean, so when the tide would come in, all the little crabs would come in off the beach and just infest the hotel, for want of a better term. <laughs> so when you go to bed at night, it was fine in your room. But if you need to get up to go to the loo in the middle of the night, 
They're in your room. And, like, they're only little ones, but your feet were crunching oh, on them. Oh, no. <laughs> and I don't know, it was probably four bucks a night with breakfast thrown in and it was a cold shower and she handled it. She didn't she complain, didn't want to go She did home. not complain. And I think at that point I thought, wow, and we had a fantastic time and it was great to show, be able to show her some of the experiences that I've had and then we've expanded on those together with the kids. But I yeah. think when she got over the crabs, um, crunching <laughs> them on the floor, I thought, wow, if this woman can handle this, she's worth, a worth hanging yeah, on She's to. absolutely worth hanging on to. Yeah, oh. I have thought about that for years. <laughs> I have thought about that for years. Well, it's just it's, it's moved into taking the kids away and that they're – the situations you've found yourself in with, with well, just that description of, of the crabs on in on the around the bed or or flying in to uh, LA after a 12, 14 hour flight and then being told that your flight's delayed and you get a bus and it goes for eight hours or yep. wherever it may be around it's some extraordinary the the persistence of of E and the kids to say right no. Nah, and the the attitude to say no, nah, we're going to take this on. Yeah, that's that's inspirational, isn't it? Well, I think it's it's a fine line, and you've got to be really careful. I find, and everyone has different experiences with parenting. This is my personal experience, yeah. so this is not a reflection on the school system, how other people may view it. But the way, yeah. to be honest, the way I view the school yeah. system with our kids growing up, not the school, but the school system and the way it's taught is. They come back and they do this fantastic thing called posed, positive education, stuff we didn't learn about mm. at school, but they have recurring themes, you know, about being friendly or looking after people or being having a positive body image, which I think is all fantastic. I think, again, personally, I don't yeah. want to slam the education system, but I have seen with our kids they learn a lot about the word resilience at yeah. school and the importance of resilience, but they don't get any opportunity to display it. Right. Because when you lose in footy or netball or cricket, there's no scores taken. And if you come ninth out of ten, you still get a ribbon. Now, some people view that yep. as the way forward. I probably have a different view to that, but I saw our kids growing up being told that they needed to be resilient but not given the opportunity to be resilient anywhere. Or to really learn it, yeah. To, to, to know what the word means and experience it. So... You so know, they so they do do they've shown that clearly by the situations that I've had them described to me or you described to me there. How does that make you feel towards I, them? Yeah, those, the kids, but also e in the right regards to the situations that you've been in, but the desire to just push on. Yeah, I think probably you'd have to ask Erica, but certainly me. I think she probably views it the same way that the give, biggest gift we've been able to give our kids is to teach them what resilience actually means. Yeah. As in it's not a word, it's a thing. So when we get to the bottom of a volcano and we're set to climb it in Guatemala nine months ago and the guy says, well, your kids are young, too young to do it. You know, there hasn't been anyone since a 14-year-old up there and they're seven and nine at the time. And in that part of the world, they don't put limits on you. They say, right, you can take them up there, but if we don't get to the – if you're the one that has to take them back down – so they hike a volcano for 12 hours and get to the top and they have ups and downs and they have points where they're like, Dad, I'm not sure we can make this. And it's like, okay, what do you want to do? Do you want to push mm. on? And then they learn their limits and they learn what resilience is. And then they get to the top of the volcano and it's exploding in front of their eyeballs and they've learnt the value of resilience and sticking yeah. with it. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. You would, 
have these dealings with your own kids about whether the, the school system these days teaches them that resilience or whether it just explains the word to them, I don't know. So I think the travel, yep. getting on a bus because the airline's not going or not being able to order a meal because it's a different language or having to push through things a little bit, I think that's the greatest gift we've been able to give our kids and hopefully that holds them in good stead yeah. because, mate, again, when it comes down to it, when they finish high school, they'll be competing for a place in university or at TAFE mm. or whatever they want to do. And then when they go through that period, they'll be competing for a job. And if we don't set them up with the ability to learn how to deal with the failures along the way, then I don't think we're doing the right thing by them. Do you know uh, what I mean? Totally, totally, can totally relate to what you're saying. My last question then is that, you ask so many of your guests for a, a message to the youngsters that mm. are very, very, you know, you're really proud to, to know that so many young children and listen to this podcast with parents yeah, uh, all by themselves. And you normally ask a guest to, to just some advice, maybe, you know, tell us about one thing, one bit of advice, how to get to become that level or achieve something. I want to ask you a message from you to your kids and, and to Erica. In what respect? About the experiences that you've been through and their approach to it. You've, you've, you've set up what you're hoping to achieve, that they're going to learn resilience yep. and learn toughness and persistence. I reckon they've ticked that box. How has that made you feel, all three of them? Well, I think I'm incredibly lucky to have three really adventurous souls now that live in the house. And some of that is learnt and some of that's their natural enthusiasm. I think a lot of it comes from me. She's prepared to have a crack at anything. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of adventure. I'm going off track a bit here in the modern world. So if we were trying to climb that volcano in Australia, you, you make sure your kids are safe. But in Australia, if there's an age it. limit yeah. of 10 and yeah. you have an eight-year-old, you can't do it. Yeah. Whereas in other parts of the world, they say, okay, if you're prepared to take that on board and use that responsibility yeah. as a parent, you can do it. So I think I'm just incredibly proud of them that they are prepared to have a crack at anything and are prepared to fail because we've heard in this podcast how many times I've failed along the way, mate, whether mm. it's Shuey not answering the question or trying yeah. to do it in a different accent or whatever it may be. That's my message to everyone listening, Pre prepared to fail and fail time and time again because you're not, I don't think anyone that achieves any success in life doesn't have failings along the way. And like Erica and I, it's not like we've got the perfect marriage. We have to work on stuff mm. the whole way through, but we're prepared to make mistakes along the way but learn from them and move on. And I think for any of the youngsters out there listening, it feels strange giving this advice because I'm not normally one to give advice. Yeah. I'm the one asking that question. But I think people and young people, you need to be prepared to fail. So if you go to the nets and you get bowled four times, that's all right because you're learning about that certain delivery. Or if you go for a job at the ice cream shop and you don't get it, that's all right because you can look back and think, right, why didn't I get it that time? And you can move forward. You, you would have had probably more, well, you would have had more failures out in the middle as a batsman than you had successes. Mm. But you probably Absolutely. learn more. The way I view it, you learn more from those failures. And if yeah. you go through life thinking, I can't fail, I'll never fail, and I have no resilience, and I make a mistake and that makes me stop, then I think then you have lost out. So if you're listening out there with your mum and dad, don't worry. If you stuff things up along the way, just learn from them and move on because it's all a massive part of the process.
Well, mate, I reckon you, uh, by very the, the experiences you've offered your family and overseas, but even as simply as having them part of this podcast, I think the messaging has well and truly sunk through to them and you should be extremely proud, and I know you are, and you uh, have got an extraordinary um, tightly bound family unit and it's something that I know you're very, very proud of and, and they are just beautiful people and that's credit to, to you and to Erica and, and particularly those two kids. They're just absolutely phenomenally well-mannered <laughs> and respectful and just it's a, it's a beautiful unit. And that's the greatest compliment you get as a parent, isn't it? When someone else comes up and says to you, uh, your kids have got good manners, like I hear the opposite as well, but when people say your kids have got good manners, the only other thing... I would like to say about family, and you would have experienced this, I've spent and I continue to spend large chunks of time away Mm. right throughout the kids, right throughout Erica and my relationship and right through the kids growing up. The cricket season now we're in the middle of, you know, we go away for, well, you can't get home at all at the moment. Mm. You're away for extended periods of time and I try and put myself in Erica's shoes about how difficult that is every lunch, every breakfast, every dinner, every cricket training, every yep. netball training, every school uniform wash when I'm not here. And I say to her, I truly appreciate what you do and it amazes me what you do, but I can't actually understand how difficult that is because I'm yeah. not left at home with the yeah. kids for three weeks at a time. So I think you need an incredibly strong woman in my situation. There's some men that do that when their partners go out. I'm indebted to Erica for what she's done when I'm not here to be such a wonderful mother and such a caring mother and such a strong mother and such a beautiful mother because a lot of the time I'm not here. And it's all right for me to come home and someone says, oh, your kids have got beautiful manners in the middle of summer. Well, they've got that from the mum because she's been at home with them for the last 12 days where I've been off at a test match with you, etc. So I'm indebted to my wife for keeping the family unit so strong because I don't think all partners on either side of the fence could do that when one partner is away for an extended period of time, and I love her dearly for that. Right. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to say. We could go for another four hours, um, but I'll probably... No, no, there's nothing much apart from I really appreciate having a chat with you, and I have actually have really enjoyed it. Um, I hope we didn't go too off track. The The podcast has always been about positivity and motivation. Yep. Well, that, that, that's it then. I mean, that yeah. is it because that's exactly what the whole uh, decision around trying to crank this up from, from my personal point of view, as I said, I think your listeners, 50 million of them, mm. deserve and want because there's a lot of feedback that comes in, yeah. I know, want to know more about you, want to know your story and that this has just been Absolutely brilliant. I'd started to learn this story over the years yeah. and felt like there's such an interesting story to tell. But it is based around positivity uh, and it's inspirational yep. and motivational. And I wrote down a couple of characteristics that I would use to describe you and versatile, hence yes, and then work <laughs> it out later. Yep. Uh, creative, uh, empathetic, appreciative and one of the most humble people I've ever come across. And I cannot thank you enough for the direction that you've helped give me in my life and my, well, my professional life, which then spills into your personal life. And, mate, absolute 
honour and privilege to have sat here and chatted with you on your podcast. Thank you, mate. And you said humble and then I've been speaking about myself for two, <laughs> two hours. Well, you're the key in the <laughs> yeah. You're saying now there's no time for humility yeah. here. Tell yeah. us what happened. Yeah, it is. It is. And I appreciate that. And, you know, it's as I said at the start of this, you probably know me better than anyone apart from Erica and the kids because we've spent so much time together recently. If anyone's got this far, I don't know. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say, anyone that started this and is still listening, where's Timmy? Timmy. <laughs> What's Timmy doing these nah, days? Timmy's a guru. He's a real estate agent in Brunswick. He's he's a good man. He's still married to the beautiful Anna, and he set me on this path by saying, mate, we can't be watching this soccer game on TV. We've got to go to the game, and hopefully I've taken that on board ever since. Good on you, guru. Brilliant. So there you have it, the Howie story from the horse's mouth. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, sitting down and interviewing him. I love the man. What a legend. He's taught me so much and he's a great mate. And I hope you feel that little bit closer to Howie. Stick around for next week, episode 116, The Prince of the Caribbean, Brian Charles Lara. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener